Okay, so, so, so please, Commissioner, um, uh, let me welcome you to uh, our event um, today with uh, Commissioner uh, Jonathan Hill on the impact of the EU regulatory framework for financial services. I'm sure lots of you uh, have many, many questions uh, on this particular topic, but perhaps even more questions on um, uh, the role of the United Kingdom and um, the departure um, uh, from the European Union that's upcoming. Um, and I, I certainly think that the two issues are not totally unrelated. Um, financial services is one of the key issues um, that will uh, figure in, in this debate. Uh, but nevertheless, we have now um, the pleasure to, uh, to listen to Commissioner Hill on the more specific aspect, which is the, the review, um, really, of the regulatory framework. But uh, the Commissioner was kind enough to, uh, to have agreed to take two or three questions at the end, um, um, uh, which uh, you know, um, uh, he, will, he will answer. And then we will move on to uh, a panel debate with a few uh, distinguished um, scholars, politicians, um, academics uh, to discuss the, the, the issue further. Um, um, but unfortunately, then you, you already have to leave. So yeah. thank you so much for coming yep. today. I think it's your last um, public event, uh, in fact, uh, uh, almost last. Almost last. There'll be lots of last events. Right, <laughs> in Brussels. Okay, so, so anyway, thank you so much for coming, despite all the difficult circumstances no. today. No. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I, I was keen to come along because I know really what you want to talk about is financial regulation. And that's why there is such a turnout. And you're not all just coming along to see me for the last time. Um, well, I've just got three days left as Commissioner for Financial Services. And really, I ought to be back in my house packing instead of coming here to talk to you. But that just goes to show um, how much I like packing that I choose to speak about financial <laughs> regulation. And Although I had no direct experience of financial services before I came to Brussels, I obviously arrived with a set of attitudes and a set of experiences already in place. I was a small businessman who'd taken the plunge and had set up my own business. I was a, uh, a, a small state conservative who was, who is, sceptical of big institutions and big government. I certainly wasn't an expert on financial regulation, although I think that's not in itself a bad thing because it means you have to go back to first principles. But I had seen regulation at first hand in the British system because contrary to the myth, not all rules are made in Brussels. And uh, when I was an education minister, I had seen well-meaning but over-detailed rulemaking demotivate head teachers and make them feel hemmed in and deprofessionalized. Also, both in politics and professionally, I'd had a ringside view of a series of crises. And these crises taught me how often some patterns of behavior repeat themselves. And one of the most frequent being that people first fail to identify a problem before they then massively overreact to dealing with it. Now, these were then some of the attitudes, what some might call prejudices, that I brought to the job. 
And my thinking was shaped by some other factors too. For example, I joined a commission which was dedicated to legislating less and legislating better. And I took up the reins at a time when the biggest challenge facing Europe was the lack of growth and jobs. And indeed, I think it's been this desire to support growth and jobs which has informed my approach to financial regulation. It was a realisation that while we want stability, we don't want the stability of the graveyard, that without risk, there is no growth. And it was that realisation which first led me to reflect that in various areas we need to think again and that we needed to think about macro-prudential and not just micro-prudential considerations. We needed, in other words, to think about the bigger picture. And if you think about it, it's natural that when a micro-prudential regulator or supervisor has to assess risk, they take a highly cautious approach, especially if there's been a crisis caused in part by a lack of regulation or a failure of oversight. No one wants to be accused of being asleep on the job. And while that is perfectly understandable, it may indeed be what they're required to do under their terms of reference, I think the problem comes if a number of different regulators or supervisors are all taking an equally risk-averse approach. And then the cumulative impact of a series of micro-prudential judgments can, I believe, itself become a source of macro-prudential risk. So in short, I concluded that whereas after 2008 the greatest threat to financial stability had been the financial crisis, over time the greater threat had become the lack of growth itself. In other words, too little risk itself became a big stability risk. And that is what led me to argue that in Europe, the regulator, me, must therefore be prepared to deviate from the advice given by the supervisors if macro-prudential considerations demand it. So when I look back, what lessons have I learned? What advice would I give to a new me? And uh, here are some principles which I've written down, which I wish someone had told me when I started. The first is don't imagine that legislating is a science. It's not. It's just a series of judgments. Clever people can make it sound sometimes as though there's only ever one answer. But it's not true. So always be open to doubt and to admitting that you might have got your judgments wrong. I think you need to recognise that the broader economic and political environment in which regulations are drawn up, they also change over time. So keep an open mind. Be ready to change as the facts change. Looking again at legislation is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of self-confidence. Only people who are unsure of themselves or madly oversure of themselves could argue that everything they have done is perfect and mustn't be looked at again. My next principle is 
be brave enough not to regulate. And here I'm afraid that the incentives for politicians and regulators are generally not aligned with good regulation. No one wants to have a finger pointed at them for doing nothing. Politicians tend to want to be seen to be part of the action. It's hard to do nothing when you're surrounded by people whose job it is to do something. But resist. Acting too soon can be as much of a mistake as acting too late. And long after the politician has put out his press release and moved on, business still has to live with the consequences. I think you should always work as hard as possible to understand the impact of what you're doing on the marketplace. As a regulator, you shouldn't expect to win popularity prizes with the businesses you regulate. But you should seek to avoid unnecessary conflict between the regulator and the regulated. And always work with business to understand the real-world consequences of what you do. Keep it simple. A lot of regulation is so complicated that only a handful of people can possibly understand it. And I think sometimes it's like we've created some high priesthood who speak in a special language that is beyond the comprehension of mere mortals. But complex legislation, I think, is good only for lawyers and for compliance officers. It's bad for values-based leadership. It weakens individual responsibility. I think that it leads people to ask, can I get away with it? instead of asking, is it the right thing to do? And I think if you're not careful, it can eat away at trust in lawmaking. Then I think we need to try to legislate in a way that can accommodate the rapid pace of technological change. Most legislation is by nature backward-looking. It's paper-based. It's related to old products and challenges. That's why I think that developments with so-called regulatory sandboxes are so interesting, where the regulators and the regulated work together in the interest of encouraging innovation and business growth. If I'd been here longer, that's an approach that I was keen to encourage, spreading best practice across Europe. I think that we should aim for an international approach, but don't be a slave to it. It makes a lot of sense to work on agreed international principles so that you can reduce the practical difficulties of reaching equivalence decisions after the event, as I had to do with the uh, United States on CCPs. It's why also that I've been working to strengthen regulatory cooperation with the US and to set up an Asia-Pacific forum. But at the same time, you should be prepared to deviate from the work of global standard-setting bodies like the Basel Committee if you think that their conclusions are too sweeping or they fail to take into account the particular circumstances of a banking sector in Europe which by its nature is very diverse. And also, always remember that regulators are herd animals too. They're as prone to groupthink as everybody else. Now, when I came to Brussels just under two years ago, it was at the end of a period of intense rulemaking. 
to stabilize the markets, to make our banks better capitalized, to restore trust. A new legislative architecture was being put in place. As a result of that, our financial system is clearly stronger, it's clearly more resilient. But when you have to fix your roof in the middle of a storm, you can't expect to get everything 100% right. And that was why, in essence, I wanted to take a second look at the 40 or so separate pieces of legislation that we passed after the crisis to see how the different rules were interacting with each other and whether our legislative framework could be made more growth-friendly. And that was the thinking behind the so-called call for evidence that we launched last year. Now today, as my uh, swan song, I wanted to set out some of the next steps for the call for evidence and explain how I think we could increase funding to the wider economy make our legislation more proportionate and reduce the compliance burden for businesses without compromising our regulatory objectives. Now, one of the things I was clear on pretty much from the outset is that we need to take Europe's interests into account when agreeing global rules. In the banking sector, we need to be sure that measures being considered by the Basel Committee, like the leverage ratio, the net stable funding ratio, and the fundamental review of the trading book, that they work for Europe. Many people who replied to the call for evidence said that they were worried about the impact of these measures and how they interacted with existing rules. They're also worried about the impact of future measures on areas like trade finance, market liquidity, and on access to clearing services. Now, I believe that these sorts of issues are best addressed upstream, if we can, with our international partners. So we will be writing to Mario Draghi in his role as chairman of the group of governors and heads of supervision, the governing body of the Basel Committee, to ask for these issues to be looked at again. We've also asked the EBA to look at them as part of the review of the Capital Requirements Regulation, and the EBA will be publishing their recommendations later this month. I'm clear that we need to reconsider how we treat the loans that power international trade. Trade finance loans are typically less risky than standard corporate loans, but people have told us that this isn't being properly recognised by the Basel measures that are being developed. They worry that neither the leverage ratio nor the NSFR will recognise the the specific nature of trade finance. So we need to look at whether these measures can be adjusted and to see whether we can lower the NSFR required stable funding factor and exempt trade financing altogether from the leverage ratio calculation. As many of you all know, there's also been a lively debate going on about the causes of declining market liquidity, particularly in corporate bond and repo markets. Many argue that regulation has had a, a hand in that decline. For others, the jury is still out. But to give us the evidence we need, we're carrying out a comprehensive review of liquidity in corporate bond markets. I'm already clear that we need to take seriously the claims that the cumulative impact of different rules has reduced banks' willingness and ability to act as market makers. And I don't think that we should ignore that. 
market makers are central to maintaining liquidity and a fair and orderly market. So this is another issue that we'll be raising with the Basel Committee, and the Commission will work with the EBA and the European Systemic Risk Board to get the NSFR and leverage ratio calibrations right. We've already revised MIFID Level 2 measures to take a more cautious approach to pre-trade transparency requirements for non-equity investments. I think it would also be sensible to tackle the narrow definition of who can qualify for the market-making exemption in a future review of the short-selling regulation. The feedback that we got to the call for evidence has helped us understand the interplay between rules designed to reduce bank leverage and rules to strengthen derivatives markets, which could, of course, make access to clearing services more difficult. Unless it's properly designed, the leverage ratio could increase the cost of clearing to such a degree that it would reduce the number of banks offering these services to clients. And that would directly contradict EMEA's requirement for more transactions to go through CCPs. And it would also of course, make it more difficult for companies, investment funds and pension funds to manage their risk. So again, we're asking for these concerns to be raised with the Basel Committee. We'll also tackle it in our review of the CRR and EMEA regulations. It exemptions from clearing obligations for certain non-financial counterparties, pension funds and some small non-systemic financial companies will be considered as part of the EMEA review. Now, across Europe, we know that there's widespread support for encouraging lending to SMEs. Responses to the call for evidence focused on the importance of keeping the SME supporting factor and increasing the scope for banks to buy SME bonds. I've already announced that we'll keep the SME supporting factor, but I want to go further. So today, I can announce that we'll extend the supporting factor to loans to SMEs above the existing threshold of one and a half million euros. There'll be no upper limit and there'll be a capital charge reduction of 15% that will kick in above 1.5 million euros. We've also been working uh, to encourage more long-term investment. We took a first step last year as part of the CMU by amending Solvency 2 and reducing capital requirements by a third for insurers who wanted to invest in infrastructure projects. But our analysis shows that capital charges for some asset classes don't take into account the long-term nature of other investments. And we need to work out how this can be better recognised when we review Solvency 2. But even before that review, we should be ready to take action. We should consider revising the equity and debt calibrations for infrastructure corporates that would recognise their better performance compared to other corporates. We've received IOPA's advice on this, which is a good starting point, but we do need to consider whether we can go further. As part of the CMU action plan, we're looking at private equity and privately placed debt to see whether these should be treated as a separate asset class. And with IOPA's help, we'll also look at how to address a number of other issues, such as the non-life risk calibrations or inconsistencies with other sector-specific rules. Now, on proportionality, we had a huge number of responses calling for a more proportionate application of our rules. 
I think there's a strong sense that rules could be getting in the way of diversity, that they're not attuned enough to companies' business models, to their different risk profiles, and to their size. So for me, it's absolutely clear that we need to find a more proportionate approach. And I think that's particularly true for the banking sector. Reporting and disclosure obligations need to take account of different sizes and different business models. So, I think, should prudential requirements. And we're looking at how we can do that as part of our review of the CRR. In particular, we need to respond to claims that the standardised approach to credit risk and the systemic risk buffer put small and regional banks at a competitive disadvantage. And we also need to listen to concerns that capital buffer requirements are felt to have the same effect. For smaller banks, we should look at whether we can take a simpler approach to capital requirement calculations or indeed exempt the smallest players in the same way that we're working to do for credit unions. We should also be careful that the leverage ratio does not reduce diversity by putting pressure on business models like specialised community banks, building societies or mortgage banks. The way that investment firms are treated by the CRR also needs to change, and we need to distinguish better between large bank-like investment firms and smaller firms and set capital requirements accordingly. And that's also the EBA's view. They've already called for a more proportionate prudential regime for smaller investment firms that are not systemic. We're, they're now preparing advice as to how we can do this, and then we'll need to act on it. But this need for more proportionality, I think, goes well beyond the banking sector. We need to apply the Solvency II directive in a way that's more proportionate for small and medium-sized insurers. They raise concerns about the cost of contracts they're obliged to have with credit rating agencies and that reporting requirements are not proportionate for smaller insurance companies with a simple risk profile. So here we'll be asking AOPA for advice on how to take a simpler, less burdensome approach. Asset managers have called for a more proportionate approach to rules that govern remuneration. At the moment, they're required to comply with the rules that differ across our legislation under the CRR, USITS, AFMND and MIFID. And that makes compliance for them difficult. So we should follow up when this legislation is reviewed uh, this year and some next. Some asset managers are to some extent covered by the remuneration rules of the CRD my colleague Vera Yurova is due to publish a report reviewing the application of the CRD remuneration rules, including the proportionality aspect. And I certainly hope that this can help us make some of these rules less uh, burdensome. The third big theme that came out of the call for evidence is just the sheer quantity of reporting obligations. Many companies have said that they're required to report the same data in different formats to different bodies and to different standards. And I think we have to reduce that burden. It's not good enough to have inconsistent or overlapping reporting requirements. Uh, and I think as part of the EMEA review, we should look at ways to deal with the burdens resulting from the dual reporting obligation, at least for non-financial firms, without compromising on the quality of the data that is reported. And reporting requirements, for example, those placed on non-financial counterparties, small financials or pension funds that are not systemic, they need to be looked at again. 
The volume of data that's collected and exchanged between national authorities and the European supervisory authorities has drastically increased. That's clear. Less clear is whether all of that is essential. So we're taking forward a project on data standardization to improve reporting with new technology, and that should also give us a better idea of where the burden is unnecessary so that we can reduce it. None of this work has reduced the focus that I've wanted to build on maintaining a fair and proper balance between consumers and business. MIFID and CRIPS are coming on stream to give consumers more protection, and we're working to give them more choice through our green paper on consumer retail financial services. Follow-up actions on that will be announced in the autumn, and many of those will tackle the concerns that were raised in responses to the call for evidence. Looking to the future, I think the, uh, the call for evidence has a number of practical lessons. The crisis may have made the scale and the pace of regulatory change inevitable, but the various layers of regulation could have been better aligned. The timelines for implementation and transposition could sometimes have been more realistic. The deadlines for primary legislation could have left more flexibility to finalise secondary legislation and more time for implementation. And if we want to keep financial service companies focused on their clients, but most of all creating growth and jobs, these, I think, are lessons that we need to learn. So, as you perhaps can see, having listened patiently uh, to this, the call for evidence sits at the heart of my approach to financial regulation and my wish to see us develop rulemaking that is respected. I think the lessons it's teaching us will help us strengthen our drive for growth and jobs, but I hope that it may also have a wider application. I hope first that what we've been doing here can be used as a model internationally so far as financial services legislation is concerned. Already, global bodies like the FSB and other jurisdictions are looking at the lead that we've given with the call for evidence and saying that they want to apply a similar approach. It also fits perfectly with the approach developed by Franz Timmermans, uh, in all, which is to legislate less and review more. So I hope, actually, on the basis of the successful experience that we've had, it can be applied in other areas of European legislation. Now, that, of course, is no longer up to me. It'll be up to my colleague, uh, Valdis Dombrovskis, to take it forward. I couldn't be leaving the call for evidence in better hands. I know that he is committed to it, and I know also that the Econ Committee, and particularly Burkhard Baltz, is committed to this agenda as well, and they've had a key role in helping us get to where we are today. I think we can all uh, work hard to keep the momentum up and help deliver these recommendations that I've set out today. And I think that if we can make this a living process, if we can return to the evidence and check that our rules are working, we'll have achieved more than that. We'll have shaped a lasting agenda for a regulatory framework that manages risk, but also supports investment and powers growth and jobs. Brussels is a place, I think, that is synonymous with rulemaking. I hope that this approach 
can help it be associated with good rulemaking. And that really would be a prize very much worth having, if only just a little bit too late for me. Well, thank you very much, Commissioner, um, also for, <clears throat> for the last words on rulemaking and better rulemaking. And clearly one could see um, your, your drive to, to make the rules as we have them better, better for growth and jobs. You mentioned that several times. Um, um, I think many people certainly have questions um, around this, uh, including whether growth and jobs, more growth and jobs, uh, may also mean more financial stability risk. That's certainly uh, uh, one question that some people would, would have on their mind. And, uh, but I do not want to prejudge what uh, kind of questions could come from the audience. So let me, let me open the floor, really, because your time is very limited, uh, for, for two, maximum three questions. Um, and um, uh, who wants to wants to start? Um, Gerhard, perhaps um, Gerhard Schick, um, member of the German Bundestag. Um, he's a panelist afterwards. So you can why don't you come right away up here and 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 ask your one question, and then I take one or two from the from the audience. Um, please raise your hands if you if you wish to ask a question, Gerhard. Well, of course, I would be very interested in uh, hearing your assessment on the Italian banking situation. But I limit to the the focus of this. Um, uh, discussion. Uh, the small bank box is um, an issue that is very uh, important for uh, many uh, small and medium-sized banks in, in Germany. And I'd like to um, get a feeling of what you, where you see the chances, what can be realized in, uh, in the lawmaking here, um, and what is the limit, what will be the definition of a small bank in that respect because this is a difficult question where you put the limit concerning business model, concerning size. Should we take a few? And then we take I'll, a few. Yeah. So, so I, I think certainly this, this issue of pro, pro, proportionality and is it appropriate yeah. um, for, for the small banks is, is, is a major issue. Let me, let me take uh, the gentleman here so I can take... Uh, thank you. Graham Mather uh, was a member of the Parliament and a spokesman on financial services at one point. During that time, the City of London was always capable of being described as <clears throat> a European financial centre and at Europe's financial centre, perhaps. And I just wondered if I could ask Jonathan Hill at this point to look forward and see whether he sees that continuing. That's a good one. Um, please, yes. Per Thiemann from the Danish newspaper Politiken. The maybe biggest issue uh, in, in the negotiations that will come forward uh, in, in the next month will be um, maybe the trade-off between uh, the, the UK desire to have full access to the inner market, uh, especially also when the, with the financial services that you've been representing in the Commission, and then on the other hand, uh, maybe not accepting a free movement of people. Uh, how do you see that trade-off uh, going forward? Uh, could, could you see that happen? Because it seems like it's challenging uh, the situation that we, uh, that we have with the inner market concept as it is right now. Okay. okay. So I think that's, that's basically okay. it now. <laughs> um, well, on, the, on the, uh, this question of um, 
proportionality in small banks. I mean, it, it's, and as I was saying, not just small banks. I think I would apply it more generally. And uh, I think it is terribly important that we do work at that extremely hard. We had an approach um, on, in response to the crisis that uh, tended to look more at banking across the whole of the EU and some of the regulations uh, and requirements that have been put in place um, through Basel Committee and other ways uh, were uh, that the motivation behind some of them was actually driven by the great big global banks and then through uh, that process were then applied much more widespread way across uh, the whole of the EU. And I think that I mean, one of the first things I realised was how differentiated our banking sector is. As I said, as someone who was you know, a small businessman myself, I'm um, very uh, instinctively sympathetic to the problems that small businesses have. I mean, they don't have the capacity to argue and lobby for their interests in the same way as big organisations do. Uh, it is the case, I think, as one of my other uh, kind of basic approaches on regulation. Big, difficult, complex legislation actually helps, in a way, big business competitively against market entrants and smaller and medium-sized businesses. Can do. So I think you, um, you have to keep driving at, um, at, 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 at wanting to have more proportionate approaches. I think how you do it, which is your question, I think we've got a main vehicle coming up with the CRR review on the banks. I mean, it will now not be for me to take that forward. I was interested to see whether you can exempt whole areas of banks uh, from from being caught by uh, the requirements altogether. I mean, there need to be other consequences. Um, then you're right. Then the question is, where do you set a threshold? Um, and, and those threshold issues are always difficult. Uh, I think there are points in addition to that you can look at in terms of reporting obligations. Uh, and I just think, in a way, you just have to go through all of them from the bottom up in a very detailed way and just keep looking uh, and keep pushing. And I think we shouldn't be apologetic about a, um, a, a drive to want to make sure that uh, our regulation is directed at the areas that pose the greatest systemic risk. And if you have small, non-systemic institutions, I think it, it, it's right to think of how you can develop different, more proportionate, less onerous approaches. Uh, on, on the question about... Um, the future of um, the future of London as a as a global financial centre, and and also the question about the the negotiation. I mean, in a way, the, both these issues are are linked. Um, and my cop out answer, uh, I'm glad to say, is that I'm uh, not part of the um, negotiation process as to how we. Uh, in the UK and in Europe, we work through this negotiation, which clearly is not going to be straightforward. Um, the case that, that you make about, um, the, the, as it were, the choice between free movement or single market access, 
at, at the, the way things go, that looks like a, um, a kind of binary choice, and people in, in Europe, I think, see it as a binary choice. I think in practice, when you start working through a negotiation and you have to try and work out where a best landing place is, given that this result is not what most people in Europe wanted, but I think we'll need to go through a process that doesn't end up with everyone losing from it. But we're clearly going to have to go through precisely that process. And I think that links as well to Graham's point about um, how um, London best holds on to the various elements that have made it actually a, a global financial hub, which some of which go beyond the mere, um, its mere component parts. And I think the, the only honest answer to that is that for 40 years we've been in one kind of paradigm, and I think that actually we have to rethink and reimagine a whole economic model in a way. And as you go through that, I think that helps you answer the question uh, as to um, where you'll end up on single market access issues. I think you'll have to do it in quite a granular way. At the moment, it's people are a bit like they go along to a shop and they see that there are some off-the-peg solutions and one's called EEA and EEA minus is now very fashionable. I mean, everyone talks about EEA minus. I'm not quite sure what EEA minus is, but <laughs> everyone in the know in the same way that they now all talk about passporting, which until recently most people in Britain thought was something that you carry in your <laughs> coat pocket. Um, so I, I, I think the, um, there, there will need to be, uh, I think, a very intellectually rigorous bottom-up process to identify the various elements, what people need to maintain that... Um, you know, centre of gravity that enables it to be a hub, and uh, work through that. I think the only way to do that myself is to do that working closely with the industry, uh, because I think you know government will need that expertise as part of it. Uh, and I think doing that as well, you want to have not just British companies doing that, but all sorts of companies from all across Europe and the rest of the world who see the benefit of London as a financial centre working together to see how we um, have something which, as you rightly say, has been a great benefit, not just to the UK, but to the whole of the European Union. Okay. Um, th thank you. Thank you very much, Commissioner. I know your time is limited, so thank you my very time, much. My time is very limited. <laughs> <laughs> Only two more days. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's very good of you to allow me to stay for so long. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Good to see you. Let's stay in touch. Yeah, stay well. See you Okay, let's let's move directly on to to the panel uh, debate. And uh, can can I invite Kay, Kay to? You want to take this commissioner's chair? I think it was not used. Okay, so 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 uh, I think we've heard um, a very interesting presentation about a very complex topic, um, but uh, of course um, um, it was partly presented in a very technical way. But there's of course a lot of political um, uh, and politics uh, politics behind behind this, and so I think I'm I'm very happy and glad to have uh, two parliamentarians um, here with me today. 
Gerhard Schick um, is from the Bundestag and already asked one question. Kay, Kay Swinburne um, is from the European Parliament. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming today, and you've been also closely involved in this in this discussion in in the past. So, so, so perhaps I can ask you to um, to kick off our panel debate and tell us a bit more about you know where do you see this file going going forward? Because um, now with the British Commissioner gone and um, Valdis Dombrovsky is taking taking the file. Um, Will we see the same uh, agenda going forward, or will that that agenda materially change? Well, I think the the importance the importance of, of the call for evidence and the change in way in the way in which the commission is working is a really important one, and it goes beyond one person. So it's, it it may have been introduced by Lord Hill, but actually I think this is a new modus operandi for the entire commission potentially going forwards. And so I do think that his legacy will be this new working method. And I do hope, and, and I had the assurances last week at a hearing with Commissioner Dombrovskis when he takes over the new fold files, that he will actually maintain that process. And he was very committed to the methodology that has been followed by Lord Hill and is committed to the evidence being gathered and the, this always going back and reviewing and looking at what could be done better. What are the unintended consequences? What are the intended consequences? And do they match the expectation that you had when you proposed the legislation in the first place? And I think that puts us in a fairly unique position around the world where we are prepared to go and review and then fix anything that might need fixing. It doesn't mean we're deregulating. It means that we're actually fixing and finessing to make sure that things are working in a proportionate way. And it's a strange word, that proportionate, because I suspect if you ask different people in this room what they mean by proportionate, you'll have a whole series of different answers. So I think very much like uh, the Brexit question, we know what the answer is, but I'm not sure everybody answered the same question. So I think it's, it's a real issue that, you know, proportionality is, is something that we talk about, but I think we are going to have to get a little more detailed in what we mean by it. Because ultimately, I think if it means excluding certain uh, banks from scope, then that's, that's one element of it. But actually within benchmarks, we tried to actually do that. And politically, we failed, I think, in the end to have what started out as a parliament's position on proportionality. The member states had a very different interpretation of it. So the word proportionate, I think, is a difficult one. And we need to be careful we use it in the right way. Thank you, um, Gerhard. Um, you are a Green MEP um, uh, from from the Bundestag um, and watch financial matters very closely. You've accompanied, of course, um, the bank bailouts that happened in the last years as a member of parliament, a critical voice in, in the German debate. And I think you've also followed quite a bit the regulation push um, that we've seen under the previous commission, uh, Commissioner Barnier in particular, that really aimed to uh, create a financial system, a banking system that is safer, less prone to to being bailed out by the banking, uh, by by the taxpayer. Um, how do you feel? How do you react to um, what you just heard from from Commissioner Hill? Is is, is it the right approach to to finesse and to uh, go back um, to all these regulations uh, only two or three years after they have been um, uh, passed? Or do do, do you think? Um, it's, we need more time, or what's your take on the, on the file? Hmm. 
Well, I think evaluation always does make sense um, to look back and find out what have been the consequences, the intended ones and the unintended ones of uh, the regulation uh, with, um, we decided. Um, but uh, from my experience, I would focus on two points now. Um, the one thing is the complexity issue and proportionality. I think we can define some specific dimensions for proportionality. Um, we take an example that I um, look at in, in Germany. How many uh, supervisors, so staff working in the, in the supervisor authority, work on small banks and on large banks? So I asked the question, for one million of balance sheet, how many people work at BaFin on small banks and on big banks? And you can see that for the same amount of activity, there are more supervisors looking at the small banks. That is certainly not proportionate. And if you additionally include the risk dimension, you would say there should be a lot more people focusing on the risky models of large banks with global activities, a huge derivative portfolio, than very, very small banks with a very traditional uh, portfolio. Um, so I think we should look closer at the specific dimensions of proportionality and uh, see how they overlap in different policy areas. Big banks pay less taxes than small banks do. They have less burden by supervisory authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so in the combination, we see that not only small bakeries close one a day in Germany, but also small banks close and are pushed into mergers. And this is not the development we want to see. The second um, aspect um, comes from my experience um, in the super parliamentary supervision of the banking rescue uh, efforts in Germany. And there um, we find out that the different rules in the capital markets in Europe make it very difficult to wind down banks. So what is a covered bond in Ireland? What is a covered bond in Spain? And what is a covered bond in Germany? Completely different. And if you want to reduce your bad bank in a, the least cost method for the German taxpayer, you find out that it's very difficult and more common rules on capital markets would be very helpful. You find out that tax-related um, uh, issues play an enormous role in the uh, differentiation of our capital markets, make it difficult to find an approach that is easy to handle for, for smaller banks and also when you want, want to wind down a bank. So I would say the focus of the capital, or the idea of a capital market union is a very good one, but we should include those aspects that in the practical life of capital markets play an important role and I miss them in the approach. So, so, so let me have one more round among the two of you and, and then uh, also open up for questions um, because I think there are many different aspects um, uh, that, 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 that can be d discussed uh, in in this respect, let me let me push you a little bit more on uh, because you mentioned capital markets union. I mean, capital markets union, in a sense, was designed as a project um, to uh, at least um, uh, have um, the the UK um, closely and very well integrated integrated in, into the market and develop really the market around 
also the city of London. Now, uh, with all the Brexit debate that uh, that is happening now, and with the um, with the Brexit coming, how should the Capital Markets Union project as a project um, uh, be reshaped? I mean, is it it cannot just be the same project as it was before with with the city of London outside of of the European Union? Um, at the same time, uh, I think we heard already from from the commissioner. Um, it's it's quite uncertain how much of the financial services will actually move um, from uh, from London uh, to uh, to the continent, and that very much depends on on the results of the negotiations. So, in in all this uncertainty, I mean, what should be the capital markets union agenda in the next few years? I mean, do we put everything on 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 ice for for a few years until we see what what happens with Brexit, or how would you you go about that? I guess I, I disagree with the premise of the question. I never thought the Capital Markets Union was a stop to the UK. I always thought the UK, as one of the most advanced capital markets in Europe, was not the main beneficiary of this. It was going to be those with the least advanced capital markets that had the most to gain from alternative financing methodology. So the smaller countries that really don't have very advanced access to capitals and to different products would actually be the ones who would gain most by having this, this facilitation of flows of capital. So for me, it was always about making sure that we identified best practice across the EU, and that will continue. And we have to be able to assist those uh, member states who do not have the infrastructure in place currently to actually be able to access the capital. And we don't want to have a situation where a company in a small member state has to physically move its headquarters to another member state in order to actually have access to capital. We're seeing that at the moment, and the reason the CMU was such an important project and, and got off the ground was because we were finding our European companies, including British ones, were actually relocating to the US to actually access funding when they got to the, the, the requirement of somewhere between five and, and, and 15 million uh, pounds or, or euros, they were finding it really difficult to actually find that funding. And so the VCs would say, if you move your headquarters to the US, then we'll actually get you the funding and it would be really easy, but you become a US company. And then you lose all the jobs and growth that go with it. We don't want to create that problem in Europe. You want to be able to, wherever the company is located, give them access to the capital and make sure that capital flows. And I think for me, it's going to be really important when we work out, in the long run, when, when the Brexit discussions are, are over, I would like to see us still, and, and I mean, I, I make no bones about this, I campaign to stay in, I would still like to see us have access to the single market, and I personally accept that there are obligations with that, and the four uh, fundamental freedoms are, are important as part of that mix. But for me, it's really important that we get this right in terms of a capital market to get capital flowing to the businesses that require it now. We can't wait for the Brexit discussions to end before the capital markets project actually continues. Those smaller countries need the capital now. They need those advances on the ways in which they find alternative financing rather than just bank loans in some of those member states. And I don't think this is about waiting for the UK to sort itself out. The, the CME project should be accelerated rather than decelerated at this point because I think ultimately that is where the jobs and growth are going to come from. We've identified it. We need to continue with it, no matter what my own member state might be doing in the meantime. Because I can assure you, all of the financial entities based in London want to participate in this, and they will find a way of participating in this. 
whether it be through their European subsidiaries in, on continental Europe instead, they will find a way of participating and they'll find a way of actually providing their services across the EU27 um, as well as within the UK. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with, with your point that um, access to finance is really the key of Capital Markets Union. I mean, some people have phrased it uh, around the notion of, uh, oh, I'm going to lose my stock market or I'm going to get a bigger stock market than you do. Um, but I, I think really the key is um, that there are benefits of scale, there are benefits of concentration uh, of these markets in the sense of having better access to finance by especially smaller and medium-sized companies. And so I think that this aspect is really a key aspect of, of capital markets union. I guess my concern is uh, with the uncertainty that we have around, around Brexit, um, will companies actually be able to, um, to more easily uh, access capital um, uh, in London or elsewhere? And will we actually be able to move on any of the key files um, be it auditing, be it accounting, be it um, uh, regulations uh, around uh, around uh, debt issuance, be it uh, be it um, issues such as um, uh, insolvency legislation um, that would be so anyway pretty pretty big big ticket item. But will we be able to make any progress on these issues um, uh, in in the current in the current circumstances? I guess that's a little bit my my concern. My biggest concern is, is that actually on the very first two pieces of legislation that form the first uh, building blocks of CMU, so the securitization and the prospectus yes. regulation, neither of which are going terribly smoothly right now. So even though there is a political will, they are not going smoothly. And, and the prospectus regulation, the real shame of that, of that new prospectus legislation the real shame would be if we really mess it up as politicians and make it more complicated rather than simpler to actually write a prospectus for a small company to raise funds. And I think we are in, in great danger in some of the negotiations at the moment and we're seeing member states trying to erect barriers all over again instead of actually trying to break down the barriers. So I'm concerned that even before the Brexit situation, the two files that we're currently working on between the, the Council and the Parliament, are not going as smoothly as they should. People still don't have the mindset of facilitating the flow of capital. They're still looking for ways to protect their domestic national markets. And if we start with that mindset, CME doesn't have a chance. It has to be about the flow of capital. It has to be about eliminating the barriers. And if it means that, that you end up with a hub for maybe tech companies in Estonia, because they have the digital expertise, right. then brilliant. That's where it should be. And, and I think companies will find where there's a regulator who gains experience, who, who has the expertise in judging good prospectus, then that's where you will find companies flowing to, to getting the capital from those investors in those regions. So you don't have to be big, you just have to be expert at something. And I think we have to actually help some of these countries find where their niche is and then actually help them get that, that expertise together and, and get the cluster going. And certainly we've seen some great work at the moment by people like the Irish Stock Exchange who have nurturing programs for pre-market <coughs> companies and they have a program for their senior managers mentoring them to make sure that they actually have the tools and skills necessary <coughs> at all the stages of their development 
even if they don't come to the market, they can access that type of program so that their senior management actually get the, the skill set that they need to develop their companies and grow. And we want them to grow, not sell out. And I think ultimately we have to find a way of, of nurturing these companies. Okay, uh, uh, Gerhard, um, I, I think we probably all agree that access to finance for companies is, is absolutely fundamental, is absolutely crucial, um, and that cheap access is even better. Now, if we were to find out that um, the main, and we know that one of the main access to finance is London, and if we were to find out that this access to finance would actually have to be outside of the European Union, I mean, how political be, does this become at, and at what company level would um, politicians um, in Berlin and elsewhere really feel uneasy about it? I mean, would, 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 would there be a push to say, well, we cannot have um, the EU's main financial center outside of the European Union, perhaps even outside of the regulatory framework? Would that be acceptable uh, to have a, a, the city of London not applying rules, for example, we heard about the remuneration rules, um, which are very controversial in the UK. I mean, let's see what the new government will want to have. But, but suppose there are different remuneration rules. Um, how, how much would that affect the political appetite to actually accept that the financial center of the European Union is outside of the European Union? Or will there be uh, a pushback to, uh, to get some of, uh, some of the financial centers' uh, activities back to, to the Eurozone or to the EU. I mean, we've heard already some remarks in that direction mm. uh, coming from France, but um, we haven't heard much from, from Berlin, so what is your sort of sentiment? Frankfurt. I mean, it's natural that um, both Paris and uh, Frankfurt uh, try now to benefit from the situation. Um, and uh, in Frankfurt, uh, not only in Paris, but also in Frankfurt, um, People start to think, what can we do to make companies move uh, to, uh, to Frankfurt or to, uh, to Paris? Um, I think that's very natural. I do not share the, the worry that for business in EU27, there would be a problem getting access to finance because London would be out. Either you still can use the financial market, uh, what is the financial center in London, or those activities will quickly move to Dublin, Paris, or Frankfurt. Uh, I, I don't see a problem there. But I think it's um, important to look where the real difficulties for companies lie in the access to finance. And um, I'm not convinced that securitization is the main issue. That's why I'm very cautious in reduce that, in stimulating that, accepting lower risk weights or, or et cetera, um, because I don't see the benefit for, for the real problems of, the, uh, of companies in Europe. Let's take Italy. The problem for the banks at the moment is that the high number of non-performing loans, a huge volume, cannot be handled. And one important reason for that is the way insolvency rules are applied in Italy. It sometimes takes seven years to get the house that is behind the mortgage. And this makes it very difficult to sell off non-performing loans, to deal with that. This is something that actually limits the credit volume today in Italy. 
So I think we should address these problems. A second uh, issue that we have today is that the subsidiary of a German company in Greece has easier access to finance than a Greek company in Greece. And that has to do with other issues than securitization. And that's why I think the idea of a capital market union is, is fine, but let's focus on the most important real hurdles uh, and, and barriers to finance for companies in Europe uh, today. And I would share the list that you, you mentioned. Insolvency rules are important, and uh, a lot of activities are tax-driven that plays a role. And of course, weak growth plays a role. But in that respect, I do not share the optimism of uh, Commissioner Hill that by stimulating credit, you will increase growth. That is true for com uh, countries where capital markets are very underdeveloped, but that's not the case in Europe. The main barriers to growth are not in the financial markets overall in Europe. That is true for specific companies, for the specific parts of the union, but not overall. That's why I think the focus has to be reorientated. Okay, um, did you want to react to, uh, to any of the points? Otherwise, I would also take a few questions from the audience. Um, so so why, don't, why don't we open it up? Um, who would like to, to ask a question, uh, make a remark, um, perhaps also in reaction to the commissioner's speech um, and get one of our panelists to react? Um, please um, we will not answer for him. Raise, raise your hands. Um, Okay, the file was too exhausting or too technical or... <laughs> Please, yes, the gentleman in the back. My name is Johan Barnard of APG, pension services provider in the Netherlands. I was somewhat struck by the comment just made by Mr. Sheik, uh, saying that, well, to me it, it, it sounded a bit like we have to do a pick and choose on measures to arrive at CMU. Well, I wonder whether we should not do all of those, as the Commission actually in its action plan proposes. Uh, insolvency law are in, taxation is in, securitization is in as well. APG did the securitizations with Santander, which is a bank which is very much active in the South. APG is an institutional investor more or less in the north. At first sight, I would argue, and we argued in a paper, this is very helpful for CMU. So why do pick and choose, and why not go for all of the program? This is why we have proposed all these many measures. Thank you. Um, do you want to react to it again? I can answer directly. I mean, if you look at the, the proposals on the table and what uh, the situation in the markets is, um, I would say um, the argument it will be it will help small and medium-sized companies to have access to credit. I'm very cautious in, uh, in that uh, respect because I see that uh, uh, the reality in Germany is that uh, one of the most important parts of the securitization is for uh, car sales from Volkswagen Bank. This is not access of small and medium-sized companies, uh, and this stimulates car sales, perhaps, uh, but Volkswagen has a different problem right now. Um, is, so that's why 
I'm not so optimistic that that will really help companies that need um, access to finance. What you need in, as a small, medium-sized company is that you have um, specialists on uh, finance close to your activities who know what you're doing. And that's why we focus so much on the question of proportionality, because we see that more and more banks move to the big cities. They draw away from the rural areas, and not only the rural areas. I mean, if I look at my hometown, Mannheim, yeah, there is a Deutsche Bank. There is a Commerzbank. But behind the signs, they have reduced their activity, the decisions are almost all made in Frankfurt. And if you want to, as an entrepreneur in Mannheim, you don't find those who make the credit decisions anymore uh, in your own uh, town, you find them elsewhere. And that makes it a lot, of a lot more difficult. So I think um, retaining a differentiated banking system is more important than securitization. And, um, that's why I don't want to uh, reduce um, risk weight floors, and I'm very cautious uh, in saying that that will uh, help a lot. And uh, besides the question how simple the new framework is, uh, the STS, um, I mean, there are doubts on that, too. I think, I, I, for me, it's, it's about freeing <coughs> up the balance sheets so that the banks effectively have got the, the, the money to then loan to the SMEs. So I don't see securitization as being the holy grail, but it is one piece in a very elaborate jigsaw that needs to be used in order to use capital more efficiently. And so if you give people a risk with a risk appetite, some of the more risky portfolios, then it makes sense to me that that, that, that happens to free up the, the bank, the small banks in particular, for the SME lending that needs to be done. Small companies, the very small ones, the micro businesses, are never going to move anywhere outside or unlikely to move outside of the, the bank loan and, and from maybe some small amounts of crowdfunding, which would be an extension of friends and family. But actually, you've got other companies that are fast growing that do need more sophisticated products. And there are investors out there who want to actually take that risk and get the, the reward for it. So I think we need just a more diverse set of funding options for companies. And some of them will be risk instruments, some of them will be the traditional loans, but we need that diversity. And I think the lack of diversity in, in many areas of Europe has actually caused many companies to falter. And that the funding, when the bank funding dried up during the crisis, and now the capital charges are so high, they're actually struggling to, to actually fund those really high growth companies. So we need a whole set of pieces and I think everything we can do should be encouraging. It shouldn't be about, you know, one is better than the other. All of them have got their, their merits and drawbacks for different types of businesses. And so we give them more choice, make it much more available across all countries, then I think people will pick and choose what's appropriate for them at the appropriate stage of the development of the company. So a funding continuum would be available in every member state. And so you'd have that choice, and, and companies' management could choose the appropriate mechanism for them to, to get their funding, hopefully at a very competitive price too. There's one question there in the back and then Benedict Segal and then Thank you. Uh, Ian Bell from BCS. Uh, to some extent Kay has already anticipated my comment, but 
If you look at the Italian banks, uh, it's correct. The big problem is the enormous NPLs that are on their balance sheet. But the effect of those enormous NPLs is effectively to freeze their capital because those NPLs are basically blocking the capital. And because they are weighing on the balance sheets of banks, it makes it very difficult for those banks to raise additional capital from the markets who are looking at these NPLs. That's why securitization is one of the answers because securitization would enable those banks to use those books which are still performing to securitize them and then free capital, thus being able to do more sane lending. A lot of these NPLs are actually historical. They're not reflecting the lending that's going on now. And it enables those banks, if you want to use that capital again, by getting rid of the risk. And therefore, to start a virtuous circle where their books get better and better, more lending goes to the economy, and then, ultimately, the capital markets and the equity markets will be able to give more capital to those banks. But without securitization or cleaning up the balance sheets by taking the NPLs away, which by the way, is also going to be a securitization. Without one of those two forms of securitization, it's just impossible to see how the Italian banks get out of their current trouble. And I absolutely agree to, with the points made about insolvency, but changing the insolvency regime of a nation in the UK took us 10 years to do that. It's, it's a big endeavor. And in the meantime, we do have to have a solution. Bernadette? My question was, I was the general secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation. Uh, in fact, my question would have been addressed to Commissioner Hill, but he's gone, so the question is now for you. Um, the, the recommendation he made was uh, keep it simple, and I think we should keep it simple. Um, he was saying very clearly that you have to be proportionate, you have to have flexibility of the rules in order to have growth and, and jobs. I'm not sure I agree, but that's not the point. Uh, my, my question is, do you think that Commissioner here can pack up and sleep well thinking that uh, a catastrophe a collapse of the financial sector is not going to happen again? What I hear about the Italian bank and the German bank is not very encouraging. So uh, are these rules strengthened for the big banks? Uh, because in reality, um, this is the worst problem for jobs and growth. If we cannot sleep well and be sure that this is not going to happen again, then you know whatever we invent uh, for uh, small and medium-sized enterprises is not going to work. So do you sleep well? Uh, well, we don't know whether the commissioner sleeps well, but, uh, but certainly we can hear um, whether our panelists sleep well. I think as one of the, the parliamentarians who was involved in the banking union set of, of legislation, we now have a very different system, or at least we should have a very different system if it's fully enforced and fully implemented. And the issue for me is that we have a mechanism by which there is a single supervisor for Eurozone banks. Um, all of the countries you just mentioned would fall under that, as would the majority of those banks that are, are currently suggested to be in difficulty. The other issue here is that there is a single resolution mechanism. I think with the capital charges that Basel actually introduced globally, banks have had to hold a much higher level of capital. So they are in a very different situation to where they were back in, in 2007 and 8. However, you are never going to get to a stage where no bank fails. And I don't think we ever should be in a situation where no bank fails. 
you have good supervision and then you have orderly wind down. And the way that the banking union legislation has been put in place, you have a single supervisor who's monitoring, who doesn't have the nationalistic tendencies of previous NCAs. And so you're actually hopefully getting a much safer system with better alerts along the way. Now, when that goes wrong and that you still have failing banks, then you have the resolution mechanism. And that, again, as a single resolution mechanism and the BRRD alongside it should give us the tools. But, of course, all member states have to fully implement and there should be no bending of the rules for anybody. So no member state at this point in time should be allowed to deviate from what has been set up in terms of banking union and they should not, by the back door in any way, be funding their banks through taxpayer state-aided mechanisms. There, there has got to be a set of rules that are, are adhered to. Otherwise, we will see the collapse all over again of the set system of rules. And, and ultimately, it was the lack of enforcement of those rules in 2008-9 that actually caused many of these problems in the first place. There were plenty of rules before. They just weren't being enforced terribly well. So we genuinely need to enforce them this time round. And I think anybody who tries to fudge this one will do it at their peril, because I think the whole banking system would be in danger if we lose the confidence of the markets once again. So, so let me push you on that one a little bit further. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, if, if I understand you correctly, that uh, was probably a comment um, <coughs> that relates to the current discussion around, around Italy, um, but perhaps I misunderstood I that. I don't think it's exclusive to Italy. Yeah. Right. There are several other countries who have so, some issues too. So right, absolutely. But, but so, so um, just to try to understand, I mean, the, the, the BRD rules, of course have a few um, exceptions that cater for um, systemic issues. Mm -hmm. For example, the precautionary recapitalization uh, possibility. I, are you suggesting that we should use those uh, instruments within the BRD? Um, uh, or are you saying that the systemic risk um, is so little that you can sleep well? I'm saying that I am much more confident than I was that there is supervision at an appropriate level and that there is a supervisor who no longer has just the national interests. And the ECB as a single supervisor for the major banks and for even just the four largest banks in every member state, so they may not be terribly large, they're the four largest in a member state, they come under that umbrella. And many of these banks that we are hearing rumors that may be in difficulty come under that single supervisory mechanism. And so I would hope that their alerts are working and that they are working hand in hand with the National Competent Authority and with the national, with the, the national regime as well as with the, the ECB regime to make sure that all action is taken that is allowed and permissible, but that they do not allow things to be stretched beyond what was recognized in the legislation. And I think we need to make sure the rules are adhered to because once they are fudged, and, and I don't know if that's a typical term, but I don't know how it translates in any other, other language, but, but once you actually sort of deviate for one circumstance, you have lost all rules because everybody will then push them to their limits and you'll never have a, a constraint on it. Yeah, but, um, do you sleep well um, after hearing uh, Commissioner Hill? Um, or, or not? 
Fortunately, I sleep well, depending more on the air in the room than in the situation <laughs> on financial markets. But um, I think what we see now is um, these are the consequences of the fact that Europe has not cleaned up its banking system properly after the crisis. It's not so much about the new rules, that is perhaps part of it. It is the fact that in Deutsche Bank, they lost five years muddling through and not cleaning up the mess and not reorienting, reorienting the, um, the business model. And some of the uh, legal issues they have are not pre-2008, they're after 2008. Uh, and the same holds for the Italian banking system. There have been billions of dividends handed out to owners of banks in recent years instead of using those billions to stabilize and build up a capital base that is a buffer for difficult times. Um, and uh, this uh, you could observe in recent years, and uh, the deleveraging uh, in the United States has been more important than in Europe. So it was clear that one day we would have to do that. So now the question is, is there a systemic risk? Well, I would say in the that the problems of the Italian banks have been there before the Brexit vote. You cannot link that directly. But of course, afterwards, the problems uh, increased tremendously given the market reaction. Um, but I think it is important to see that the non-performing loans in Italy and the difficulties of the banking system have more to do with the economic situation in Italy. It's not an issue of subprime investment or toxic assets. It has to do with the economic crisis since 2009. You can see that in 2007, they had a very low portfolio of non-performing loan, and then it built up during the economic crisis. So from the two uh, points that the Italian government makes, let's, let us help our banks with um, taxpayer money, and we need an investment strategy in Europe to push for a more for better macroeconomic coordination and for more growth. I would take the second one as an answer, but that is really urgent. Otherwise, you allow for uh, a taxpayer rescue of one bank now, and you will continue the next years because those non-performing loans will build up again if the economic crisis continues, and then it will be a never-ending story. All right. Um I think we are we are coming to uh, to the close of uh, of this event. Uh, thank you so much for uh, first of all our two panelists. Um, it was great to to hear your perspectives on this important file, and I think this discussion will for sure continue. And I hope to invite you again um, uh, very soon. Um, and let me thank all the participants for um, having been with us today. Not the last, but almost the last public event with Commissioner Hill in Brussels. Um, and um, I think that this debate will continue um, uh, uh, in the next years. And so please stay tuned with us. And I think we have a reception afterwards um, uh, to uh, um, celebrate our new, uh, our new rooms, uh, our new uh, event rooms, um, uh, which um, will be officially open today. But we do this a little bit later. I think first some people may want to leave and so on. Thank you.